0: Welcome to Israel Week in Review with your host, Ben Rotsman. Today is Sunday, July 11th. This program brings you a breakdown of the week's news from Israel. We go behind the headlines to offer listeners in-depth understanding and context to help you understand Israel and the broader Middle East. Israel Week in Review is brought to you by Origin Story Marketing. Search engine optimization is essential in today's business environment. To learn more about how Origin Story Marketing can help customers find your business, visit OriginStoryMarketing.com. Isaac Herzog officially sworn in as Israel's 11th president. In a ceremony presided over by the Knesset Speaker Mickey Levy of Yesh Atid, a shofar was blown and the traditional call of, long live the president was shouted in the plenum. Knesset Speaker Mickey Levy made an impassioned and serious speech, saying, You are entering the post during a difficult period in which Israeli society is more divided than ever. This is an existential threat for the state of Israel, a greater threat than Iran's nuclear program. I am hopeful you will be able to lead a new and different dialogue in Israeli society. Outgoing President Reuven Rivlin thanked the nation for the privilege to serve as its president. He touched on a theme that he has repeatedly discussed during his tenure, namely the need to reduce tensions between Israel's various tribes. He has outlined these tribes as secular, national, religious, Haredi, and Arab. In other news, the situation in Lebanon continues to deteriorate. Israel's neighbor to the north is in a complete state of freefall. The World Bank has categorized Lebanon's economy as one of the world's worst economic crises since the 1850s. Hyperinflation is ravaging the country, completely decimating people's incomes and savings. There is a lack of medicine and pharmacies, grocery store shelves are almost empty, and gasoline is so scarce that the current price of gas in Beirut is $47 per liter, nearly $178 per gallon. Hezbollah has attempted to make the case that only Iran can help save the country. They have been giving vouchers to their supporters that can be used in a new chain of grocery stores, selling only Iranian and Syrian products. Hezbollah also argues that the country needs to import Iranian gas. Two of Lebanon's main power plants have completely run out of fuel, causing electrical outages throughout the country. This includes such national priority locations as Beirut's International Airport. Water is also being rationed because the water infrastructure does not have sufficient electricity to function properly. Last week, Defense Minister Benny Gantz made the case to the Lebanese people that Israel would be willing to assist with humanitarian aid. Considering that Hezbollah is far and away the most powerful military force in the country, this will not happen. The country is experiencing a brain drain that may even exceed the dark days of the Civil War. Thus far, protests have been subdued. However, if the situation were to become more chaotic, It is unclear what would happen to this nation, divided as it is, along sectarian lines. Each religious community is retreating unto itself and creating informal social services for its co-religionists. The Lebanese state has long been extremely weak. It is now becoming almost a theoretical entity. There is always the possibility that the country could degenerate into open sectarian conflict. The Shia militia Hezbollah, easily the strongest military force in the country, could subdue the Lebanese army in very short order. Would the rest of Lebanon acquiesce to total Iranian domination? Only time will tell. The situation remains highly fluid. King Abdullah of Jordan receives major boosts from Israel in the United States. King Abdullah received major concessions from both Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and U.S. President Joe Biden. On Thursday, the Prime Minister's office revealed that the Israeli Prime Minister had met with King Abdullah at his palace in Amman the preceding week. On Tuesday, President Biden publicly invited King Abdullah to Washington later this month, making him the first Middle Eastern leader to visit the Biden White House. The Kingdom of Jordan has been pressured from a variety of fronts in recent years. The country of 10 million people received an influx of 1 million Syrian refugees since civil war erupted in neighboring Syria a decade ago. The already resource-poor country has been operating with a significant water deficit. The country is almost entirely dependent on pumping water for underground aquifers, It has been using this resource at an unsustainable rate. Israel's peace deal with the kingdom requires the Jewish state to supply Jordan with 50 million cubic meters of potable water each year. Yesterday, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett announced that Israel would double this allotment of water. Israel is concerned that the lack of water resources could contribute to destabilizing the Jordanian monarchy. Israel shares its longest border with Jordan, demarcated by the Jordan River Valley. Political instability, or even the overthrow of the monarchy, is a major concern for Israel and the United States. In April, reports emerged from Jordan that the king's half-brother, Hamza, was placed under house arrest for undisclosed plots against the king. This event raised alarm bells in Jerusalem and Washington. The Jordanian monarchy is a linchpin of both U.S. and Israeli security in the region. There is some concern in Jerusalem that the Biden administration may choose to pressure Israel into making some concessions to the Palestinians in order to bolster the king's popularity. Palestinians make up the majority of the kingdom's population. In fact, Abdullah's wife, Queen Rania, is of Palestinian descent herself. The West Bank was incorporated into the Kingdom of Jordan from 1948 to 1967, and many West Bank Palestinians have Jordanian citizenship. Jordan also maintains a central role in the administration of the Haram al-Sharif, the Temple Mount. The Jordanian waqf is recognized by Israel as the Islamic custodian of the site. It may be particularly important to shore up the kingdom at this time, because the country's economy has been under significant pressure due to the influx of refugees and the economic impact of the COVID-19 virus. The monarchy's base of support has historically been amongst the region's Bedouin tribes. There are indications that some of these tribes are disgruntled with the recent economic situation in the Kingdom. The new Israeli government fails to pass a law extending a ban on awarding citizenship to Israeli citizens who marry Palestinians. The new Israeli government failed to pass an extension of a Palestinian reunification law that ostensibly was supported by most of the MKs in the chamber. The law's purpose was to prevent automatic citizenship for Palestinians who marry Israeli citizens. The law was passed during the Second Intifada after a number of Palestinian citizens of Israel and their naturalized spouses were involved in terror attacks against Israelis. The law was enacted in 2003 and has been extended annually, including every year of Netanyahu's premiership. While the law was passed because of security issues, there is also a demographic rationale for the legislation. It is estimated that 200,000 Palestinians would gain Israeli citizenship each decade if the legislation was not passed. Likud and other right-wing parties have historically supported the extension of this measure. They have opted to vote against the issue simply to embarrass the new government. Moreover, renegade Yamina MK, Amichai Shikli, voted against the bill even though he reportedly told Interior Minister Ayelet Sheket mere minutes before the vote that he would support the measure. Mr. Shikli later announced that he was considering running for Likud during the next elections. All polling indicates that the vast majority of Israelis support the passage of this bill. It will be interesting to see if Likud pays any price for its opposition to a bill that arguably has damaged Israel's national security situation. In financial news, SoftBank, the world's largest venture capital firm, has decided to enter the Israeli market. The company primarily invests in companies operating in the technology, energy, and financial sectors. This is a tremendous vote of confidence for these sectors in Israel. SoftBank does not invest in small startup companies in an effort to guide them to greater profitability. Rather, SoftBank invests in companies worth a minimum of $200 million. They provide an influx of cash into firms that are already seen as mature and relatively safe investments. SoftBank runs the Vision Fund, the world's largest technology-focused venture capital fund, with over $100 billion in capital, much of it backed by sovereign wealth funds based in the Middle East. It has invested in such well-known companies as Uber, Alibaba, TikTok, and Didi. Didi is the largest Chinese vehicle-for-hire company with over 550 million users. The Japanese-based firm has appointed former Mossad chief Yossi Cohen to head its Israel operations. Although Mr. Cohen does not have a background in investment, He is a well-known and respected figure in Israel. He has the ability to connect with Israeli entrepreneurs and open doors for them in virtually any company or government in the world. Mr. Cohen will be responsible for identifying promising Israeli companies for investment and helping them find markets globally, with a particular emphasis on Asia. In defense-related news, Egypt inaugurates a major new naval base on its western coast. Abu Dhabi's crown prince Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al Nahyan and Mohammed Al-Menfi, head of Libya's ruling presidential council, were in attendance. The naval base is less than 100 miles from the Libyan border. It was inaugurated on July 3rd, and the base is itself named July 3rd. This was the date that Egyptian leader Abdel Fattah el sisi deposed Mohamed Morsi, the Muslim Brotherhood leader, and took control of the country. The base has meant the shore up Egypt and the UAE's policy of assisting the government of Libyan leader Khalifa Haftar. They are opposed to the efforts of Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Erdogan's AKP party is an Islamic party that has been greatly influenced by the Muslim Brotherhood, albeit with a neo-Ottoman orientation. Mr. Erdogan has repeatedly voiced his support for Muslim Brotherhood politicians throughout the region. In the case of Libya, he has been supporting a coalition of Islamist fighters, including the Muslim Brotherhood, former Al-Qaeda fighters and a grouping loosely termed the Revolutionary Shura Councils. In addition to the AKP's Islamist orientation, Erdogan's activities in Syria are motivated by more than a bit of real politic. Turkey is also attempting to stake a greater claim to new gas deposits found in the eastern Mediterranean. The country is seeking to disrupt a potential new deal to bring gas from Israeli offshore rigs to Cyprus and on into mainland Greece. The views and opinions expressed in this editorial represent those of the author. The editorial is not necessarily the view of Israel Week in Review. Israel Week in Review encourages editorial submissions. Editorials should be between 1,000 and 2,000 words and may be submitted to comments at israelweekinreview.com. Regional Profile, The Alawites
1: Israel's northern neighbor, Syria, is emerging from a brutal civil war. The Assad regime has largely regained control of most of the country. The only regions outside of its control are in the northeast, where the Kurds have maintained some of their hard-fought autonomy. They call this region Rojava. In response to this Kurdish autonomy and concerns about the rest of Kurdish population on the Turkish side of the border, the Turks invaded Syria in 2019 and created a buffer zone along the border. It remains in place. Nonetheless, it is clear to most observers that the Syrians, with critical help from the Iranians and Russians, have re-established control over most of the country's territory and all of its major cities, with the exception of Idlib. The cost in human life and suffering has been shocking. It's estimated that over 600,000 people have been killed, 160,000 of them civilians. 6.7 million people have been internally displaced, and 6.6 million have been turned into refugees. The Assad regime, despite prognostications to the contrary, has survived although the country is battered, bruised, and far weaker than before the Civil War. In many ways, Syria has been reduced to a dependency of both Russia, which maintains a large naval base on the Mediterranean, and Iran, which maintains troops and military installations throughout the country. The Assad regime has all but one, but what does this mean? Who is Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian leader? What is his base of support? What is the regime's ideology? What are the internal religious dynamics of the country? What are the fault lines within Syria? Bashar al Assad has been the leader of Syria since 2000, when his father Hafez al Assad, who preceded him in power, died. His father was a former Syrian Air Force general who seized power in a coup in 1970. What casual observers often miss is that the Assad clan come from a religious minority considered heretical and even non Muslim by most Islamic scholars. They are members of the Alawite sect, known as Alawiya in Arabic. Their enemies historically have called them Nusayris, a term now largely considered derogatory. The Alawites are concentrated on the Syrian coast, where they constitute a majority. This is their historic heartland. However, since 1970, Alawi communities are increasingly found in Damascus and Aleppo as well. Alawite minorities can be found in the Iskandaria province of Turkey, northern Lebanon, and in one Israeli-administered town called Gajar, on the border of the Golan Heights in Lebanon. Most residents of Gajar have chosen to accept Israeli citizenship. The Alawite religion is highly secretive, and many of its practices are unknown to outsiders. What is known is that they are a breakaway sect from Twelver Shiism, the largest branch of Shia Islam. 85% of all Shiites are adherents of the Twelver sect, called Ithna Asariya in Arabic. Twelver refers to the 12 accepted imams who Shia believe are the rightful spiritual and political successors to the Prophet Muhammad. According to Shia belief, leadership of the Islamic community, the Ummah, must come from the al-al-bayt, the people of the house. This refers to the descendants of Ali ibn Talib. Ali ibn Talib was the cousin, son-in-law, and companion of the Prophet Muhammad. These early arguments about the rightful religious and political successors to the Prophet Muhammad are the origins of Islam's Sunni-Shia schism, a schism that reverberates down to our own day. The conflict is more than simply religious, it has political overtones as well. Iran is by far the largest majority Shia state in the world, making it the de facto leader of the world's Shiites. Most of the Arab world is predominantly Sunni, with the major exception of Iraq, which has a Shia-Arab majority. Until the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, Iraq had been ruled by Sunni leaders. However, much of the Arab world has restive Shia minorities. These populations exist in Syria, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and the UAE. The Gulf state of Bahrain actually has a slight Shia majority, although the nation has long been ruled by a Sunni monarchy. The Shia of the Arab world often feel quite aggrieved and have been persecuted for much of their history. One particular Shia practice that comes from this persecution is taqiyya, or the concealment of one's true religious beliefs. This response to persecution is also practiced by the Alawites. The martyrdom of the descendants of Ali ibn Talib is often conflated with the persecution of the Shia themselves. This sense of injustice, oppression, and victimization is a touchstone of Shia identity. Although the Alawites have their origins in Shia Islam, many of them consider themselves, and are considered by other Muslims, as a separate ethno-religious group. The Alawites claim descent from the 11th Shia Imam Hassan al-Askari and his pupil Ibn Nusayr. After al-Askari's death, Ibn Nusair claimed that he was the bab or gate of the Imam. This means that Ibn Nusair claimed to be al-Askari's senior disciple, chosen to promulgate his teachings. The 12th Imam, Muhammad al-Madi, ultimately excommunicated Ibn Nusair. The religion that Ibn Nusair founded likely developed over centuries in the remote coastal mountains of Syria, beginning in the 9th century. The Alawites continue to develop practices that place them well outside the scope of Orthodox Shia, and certainly Sunni Islam. The Alawites practice a syncretic religion. It includes Islamic, Gnostic, Neoplatonic, and Christian elements. Some scholars posit that trace elements of pre-Islamic pagan influences also survive. Because the practice of taqiyya, or concealment, is so ingrained in Alawite communities, it has been very difficult for scholars to comprehensively study the Alawite religion. Alawite studies have only made significant inroads in the last 20 years as a handful of former practitioners have shared details with outsiders. Unlike Muslims, the Alawites not only consume wine, but use it in a sacramental way, consecrating bread and wine in a communion ceremony resembling a Christian mass. Alawites observe the Christian festivals of Epiphany, Christmas, and other Christian feast days. They are said to believe in a trinity comprising Ali, Muhammad, and one of Muhammad's companions named Suleiman the Persian. Ali is considered a more central figure in their religion than even Muhammad himself. He is considered a divine incarnation, while Muhammad is considered the veil whose seemingly more prominent role serves to occlude the true power that is Ali. Alawites do not fast during Ramadan. They do not pray five times a day or even congregate in mosques. Historically, they have not made the hajj and their readings of the Quran are done in a highly idiosyncratic way that does not resemble traditional Muslim teachings. They highlight the hidden meaning of the text, called batin. This Gnostic reading emphasizes hidden knowledge that is not readily apparent using traditional methods of interpretation. It is used to buttress variant Alawite practices and beliefs. In the coastal Syrian regions of Syria, the Alawites historically made up the majority of the peasant population of the countryside. Landowners and urban dwellers were predominantly Sunni. The Alawites were largely poor, illiterate sharecroppers. Their testimony was not accepted in courts until after the overthrow of the Ottoman Empire and the advent of the French Mandate of Syria and Lebanon. They remained a poor, persecuted, clannish, and inward-looking people until the beginning of the French Mandate. As was common amongst colonial powers, the French sought to secure loyalty first and foremost among minority populations. They also subdivided the region politically along sectarian lines. This is actually the origin of what later became the Republic of Lebanon. This region, based around Mount Lebanon itself, was majority Christian, albeit with large Muslim and Druze minorities. The French also created an Alawite state along the Syrian coast and a Druze state in Jabal al-Druz in southwestern Syria. The Christians of Lebanon and Syria tended to support the French mandate, seeing it as a way to guard against Muslim persecution. Many of them became exuberant Francophones who adopted French language and culture. The Druze generally opposed the partitioning of Syria into different ethnic states. They are still remembered for the Syrian nationalism of Druze leader Sultan al atrash He rebelled against the French and opposed an independent Druze state. Unlike the Druze, the Alawites were strong supporters of the French mandate, in particular its efforts to create a coastal Alawite state. In fact, Bashar al-Assad's grandfather, himself an Alawite notable, signed a letter to the French requesting the preservation of an Alawite state because of what he termed the intense hatred and persecution of Muslims. It was very clear at this time that the Alawites argued that they were not Muslim and could not be integrated into a Muslim-majority nation. This inconvenient fact has largely been suppressed by the Assad regime. It was at this time that the poor, forlorn Alawite peasant farmers began a tradition of military service, first in the French run-and-supported Syrian military, and later as soldiers after the independence. For the Alawites, who were eking out a subsistence living in their coastal mountain region, training in the military was an opportunity for upward mobility. Amongst more affluent Sunni merchants and other urbanites, a career in the military was considered less prestigious and perhaps even a lower-class occupation. This would later have dramatic consequences for both the Alawites and the Sunni majority. After 1936, it became clear that only Lebanon would be partitioned to form an independent state. Both the Alawite state and the Druze state would become historical footnotes. Religious minorities in Syria, including the Alawites, Druze, and Christians, were disproportionately attracted to pan-Arab nationalism and secularism. This was an attempt to root the Republic's foundations on something other than Islam and the Ascendant Muslim Brotherhood. Political Islam was and remains a frightening prospect for the region's religious minorities. To that end, Hafez al-Assad, the current president's father, became active in pan-Arab nationalist politics, specifically the Ba'ath Party. Like him, many young Alawite men were attracted to this movement. Ultimately, Hafez al-Assad took control of Syria in the wake of the Arab world's failures after the Six-Day War. Since the 1970 coup, the Alawites have assiduously crafted a narrative that downplays their religious distinctiveness. After Assad became the country's leader, he changed the country's constitution to allow a Muslim rather than a Sunni Muslim, to become president. He then co-opted a number of Shiite ulema to rule that the Alawites were Shia Muslims. Before this time, there were virtually no Twelver Shia scholars who held that the Alawites were Muslims. However, in the interest of securing government funding for their own religious endowments and the ever-present threat of violence, a number of prominent Shia clerics in Syria reversed their position and declared the Alawites Shia Muslims. That is still the case today and goes a long way in helping to understand why the Assad regime was so willing to accept support and ultimate dependence from Iran. Since 1970, the Assad regime has tried to cultivate an image of themselves as good Muslims who nonetheless support a secular, Arab nationalist government. Mosques have been built in Alawite villages. Certain practices that deviate from Islamic norms are downplayed. Hafez al-Assad himself actually made the Hajj to Mecca in order to demonstrate his regime's Muslim bona fides. Unsurprisingly, the regime has relied heavily on the support of religious minorities to bolster its rule. Alawites, Druze, Shia, and Christians compose approximately 30% of the Syrian population. They stood behind the Assad regime throughout the duration of the civil war. Conversely, opposition to the Assad regime has often been centered around Sunni grievance and political Islam. When the Muslim brothers rose up against Hafez al-Assad in the city of Hama in 1982, the senior al-Assad laid siege to the town for a month and utterly crushed the revolt. Estimates vary between 20,000 and 40,000 Syrian citizens killed. When the Arab Spring revolts broke out in 2011, the backbone of governmental opposition was amongst Sunni groups. This included the Muslim brothers, as well as even more radical Sunni groups such as ISIS, known in Arabic as Daesh. The fighting has continued for over a decade. With help from Iran and its proxy Hezbollah, as well as the Russian military, the Assad government slowly began to reconquer its territory, albeit at a fearful human cost the Assad government has been able to re-establish its dominance through the use of overwhelming violence, including the use of chemical weapons against civilians. It has successfully managed to maintain the loyalty of a minority of Sunni Muslims who are swayed by an Arab nationalist, rather than Islamist, message. These Sunni Muslim allies are also likely swayed by the prerogatives of power and demonstrations of brute force. The regime has certainly managed to retain the loyalties of its religious minorities who have well-established fears of an ISIS victory. Such a victory would likely spell death and total destruction for the Alawites and Druze, who are considered apostates from Islam. The fate of Christians under ISIS rule would in all likelihood not be much better. The Alawites of Syria have managed to survive in a region that is not well regarded for its treatment of religious minorities. This is particularly the case for sects that have deviated from the main body of Muslims, and yet, this persecuted poor and formerly agrarian people living in their mountainous coastal redoubts has managed to not only survive, but thrive. This minority group has managed to hold on to most of the levers of Syrian power. In the early days of the Civil War, many observers wondered whether the brief experiment with an Alawite statelet along the coast would be revived in the event that the Assad government fell. The question is now moot. Nonetheless, the safety and security of the region's religious minorities is always precarious. The Alawites have prevailed for now. What their future holds remains an open question. This has been Yossi Main from
0: Israel Week in Review. And this has been Ben Ronsman from Israel Week in Review. We go behind the headlines to provide you with insight and understanding of the news from Israel and the Middle East. Israel Week in Review has been brought to you through the generous support of Origin Story Marketing, helping your business find its customers through search engine optimization. For a complimentary consultation, visit originstorymarketing.com.